Thank you, Pastor Jonathan, and uh, I'm really glad to be here. I, as, as Jonathan said, I, I work for Every Nation Theological Seminary, but prior to that, uh, six months ago, I was a graduate student, so I just completed a long PhD program in history, and uh, my specialization is actually Muslim, uh, Muslim history and the history of Muslim-Christian relations, um, and now I'm working in a seminary, which is fun. Uh, and just a real quick little bit about me, if you can show that, that image there. Um, I'm, I'm here with my wife, Rachel, who's here in the second row, but I, we left behind our two wonderful children with my brother and sister-in-law. Our oldest is Josephine. She's turning five next month. Uh, the next one is Liam. He's two and a half, and Rachel's pregnant with baby number three, who will be coming in February. So um, we, are in, we, we love the little ones, but we're enjoying the, the weekend away very much. Uh, and I bring you greetings from our Every Nation Church in Nashville, which is called Bethel World Outreach Church. I guess I've been going there for about 10 or 12 years now. And um, we really appreciate, sort of, I appreciate getting to travel around the world and sort of popping into different Every Nation churches around the world and uh, seeing different faces, but sort of feeling the same, uh, the same heart. Uh, a few years ago, I was doing a research trip in the UK, and I popped into the back of Every Nation in London, which actually was very, it met in the college auditorium. So it was very, felt very similar to this and ran into some old friends. And wherever I go in the world, I always run into some of the Victory Manila diaspora, which is fun. So greetings to all of my Filipino friends um, here. And uh, yes, so anyway, so thank you to Pastor Greg and Pastor Jonathan for, for asking me to speak. I, I understand you guys have been on a series about discipleship called Relational Formation. And is this the sixth, seventh week? I've been following along on the podcast for the last month and a half, really enjoying the podcasts. And uh, I know the first few weeks you guys talked about the purpose and then the power and the process of change. And it's a question of how does it actually work? How does it work that God does something and takes me from this person and makes me a little bit more like him? How does it, how does it happen where God takes a self-centered selfish, broken person and makes us a little more God-centered, a little more uh, centered on other people and a little bit less selfish and more loving. How is it that actually happens? I know there's, y'all are walking through this sort of process of truth, repentance, and faith. Uh, and I really enjoyed listening along. It was, it's, it's been fun to sort of track along uh, from Nashville on what's been going on here. So when Pastor Greg told me about this here, he said, you know, you can speak about anything regarding discipleship. I was like, anything? He's like, yeah, anything. And uh, I really enjoy the way that you all have been, been taking discipleship apart and really going through all these little, uh, these little steps. But I'm going to take a slightly different tack today. And rather than try to track along with this very, very coherent sort of trajectory of the series, I'm going to do something sort of related to it, but parallel, if you will. And for the next few minutes, we're going to talk about worship. And we're going to explore the relationship between worship and discipleship. And I never really thought, I mean, I grew up in church. My dad was a pastor as well, so I sort of lived in the pew. And I never thought much about the relationship between discipleship and worship. I thought those were just two different things that Christians do. But I never... Never really thought about it until I first my first sort of time where it struck me that there's something uh, inextricable about worship and discipleship was when I went to a mosque. If you could flash to the mosque image, 
That one, yes. Uh, as you know, as I said briefly, I study the Islamic Middle East, and I've had many amazing opportunities to um, travel in the Middle East, studied Arabic for many years, I've sat in homes of many of my Muslim friends, had many great meals, broke Ramadan fast with my friends, and I never forget the first time I went to a mosque, I was studying Arabic at Vanderbilt, my professor, who's Sudanese, said, why don't you guys come to the mosque with us? So I went in Nashville, and I was, you know, as is the case when you go to a worship service of another faith tradition, you begin to sort of notice all the, the differences and sort of all the distinctions. And I noticed some sort of superficial differences. You know, we took off all of our shoes when we got to the door. Uh, there are different languages being spoken all around me, even though we were in Nashville. There was different architecture. There were no chairs. Everyone's just on the rug. Uh, but those were kind of superficial. In many, in many ways, there were a lot of s profound similarities. They prayed together. They kneeled. They sat down. They heard a sermon. They had a time of greeting. They had a collection. Uh, almost everything you could say had some sort of analog with Christian worship. Except one thing. There was one thing that struck me as I walked out of that place. And it was a very friendly, interesting environment. Uh, there was a barb about the Iraq War, I believe, um, but, but for the most part, it was just this really, uh, really welcoming, interesting environment. But as I walked out of that mosque, and I've been to many Friday prayers since then, it's always been the same question. I said, huh, they don't sing. And I asked myself the question, why don't my Muslim friends sing when I gather for Friday prayer? And there's actually a very long sort of historical theological debate about why they don't sing in Friday prayer. And you might say that the Quranic recitation that the imam does is very songy. It's, it's very sort of musical in its, in its uh, feel. But that's a recitation. Uh, they don't sing. Unless you're a Sufi mystic who's sort of meeting with your, in your Sufi lodge covertly, there's no singing in Muslim worship. And then that led to the next question I asked, I said, why do we sing then? What is so important about singing that Christians do it for like half the time they're meeting? You know, we're here for 90 minutes or something, and we sing for like 40 minutes of those 90 minutes. Um, obviously, it depends on the length of the, you know, what, what tradition you're in, but every... And this is, this is without fail, I, I uh, teach church history. You could sort of drop yourself in a time machine and pop in a church service in any time and place for the last 2,000 years on a Sunday or a Saturday, whenever they meet, and there will be singing. And the question we're going to think about just for a few minutes is why? Wow. Um, <laughs> is that... It's fascinating. Um, is that the metronome? So we're going to look. <laughs> we're going to look at just for a few minutes at this question of why we sing and think about the relationship between worship and establishment. And perhaps more importantly, what happens when we sing? Why we sing and what happens when we sing. 
So in order to do that, we're going to dive into one of my favorite stories in the Bible, Acts 16. I'm going to read a set of verses for you. I have the last few verses there, but I'll read the, the context. Um, it's a really interesting uh, story that, that will help us get at this question of why. Um, and I, uh, I kind of got into these prison narratives uh, because a few weeks ago I was, I was speaking at the Every Nation Staff devotional and I was assigned um, Acts 12, which is also a prison and a prison escape narrative. So I've kind of been into these lately. But quickly for the context, and I'll read it, I'll begin Acts 16, verse 16. This is Luke speaking. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaimed you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined, them, joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So the quick context is, of this is Paul and Silas have been doing missionary journeys in what's now modern-day Turkey. And Paul felt this strong call from God that he needed to sort of cross over the Aegean to what's now modern-day Greece. So the first city he ends up in is called Philippi. He's there, and they have several, there are several interesting stories in Acts 16 of, of people who become Christians in Philippi. One of the ones we read is this, is this slave girl who's a fortune teller. But because Paul almost sort of incidentally, uh, incidentally brings deliverance in her life, he's kind of like, stop, stop following us. And then, and then he prays for it. Uh, her owners were not happy because she um, made them a lot of money fortune telling. So they rile up. Uh, the people in the city against them bring them to the chief magistrates and they're thrown in prison. That's the context. We're going to read more of the story later. But here is, and we'll just stay here on this text and think about this. Let's just imagine for just a moment, Paul and Silas, they're in a new place. They're taking this risk. They're taking the gospel to a place where it hasn't been before. And then they get in trouble pretty quickly. All right? They're taken before the magistrates. They're beaten, so they're whipped. Uh, beaten with rods, and then I'll just demonstrate this. Their feet, it says their feet were put in stocks, and they were put in prison. So just imagine the physical pain they're having, and I think it's sometimes good just to pause and think about that. Imagine the physical pain they're in. I've never been whipped before. I can only imagine what that would be like. Um, imagine the emotion of fear apprehension, maybe like we definitely should have stayed in Turkey. Uh, it was going much better there. Uh, thinking about their bleak circumstances, we've already had several people martyred by this point in the narrative of Acts, so they, they could very well die here. 
And the question we have to ask ourselves is, why on earth were they singing? Why? And let's just think about this. Their backs are torn up, all right? And they're sitting down because their feet are in the stocks. And part of the point of putting someone's feet in the stocks is, yes, for extra security, but it's also a, a sort of a mild torture method because you can't sleep. All right, you're chained, your feet are in the stocks, and your back is destroyed, so you cannot lay down. All right, so they're going to sit up all night like this while waiting to hear the magistrate. So Paul and Silas are sitting there like this, and they're singing. And the question is why? And maybe in order to get at the why question, let's ask what might they have been singing? And I'll explain how I got there, but their songs might have sounded something like this. Deliver us from our enemies, O God. Protect us from those who rise up against us. Deliver us from those who work evil. And save us from bloodthirsty men, for behold, they lie in wait for our lives. Fierce men stir up strife against us, but we will sing of your strength. We will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning, for you have been to us a fortress and a refuge in the day of our distress. Psalm 59. It may have sounded like this, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you our soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake in the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praise to you among the nations, for your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Psalm 57. Final one. It might have been like this. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the, night, in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. Psalm 63. As Jewish believers, and particularly Paul, who was, a, who was trained under a very serious rabbi, Paul and Silas would have been immersed in the Psalms. They would have known many Psalms by heart. And keep in mind, we know them as sort of poetry, read poetry, the Psalms. They, as Jews, they knew them as songs. That was their songbook. They knew the tunes of those Hebrew and later Greek translated words. So it's very likely... Paul and Silas were singing psalms like those while they were in prison. And when we think about the psalms, which um, is this sort of large chunk of in your Bible that are all songs to God, they give us many, many reasons that we ought to sing. And the word sing in the Hebrew is often in the imperative. It's commanding the people listening to join in song. And you can see even in those three psalms, people, there, there's, there's um, 
singing about, it's saying, sing because of God's love. Sing because God has been our refuge. Sing because of who he is. Sing because, and it often gives reasons why we ought to sing. But there's one sort of meta reason we see when we read the Bible, when we read the Psalms about why we sing. And it's really simple. We sing because he deserves it. And if there's really nothing else we would get from thinking about why we sing, this is the foundation, sort of the ultimate reason why Christians sing. It's because God is God. And even if we find ourselves here, like Paul and Silas, and I, I actually know some Iranian believers who have been in prison, um, but most of us will not end up incarcerated because of our faith. Uh, but we may be in situations that feel prison-like. And you may feel that emotionally or spiritually, financially, you're like this. Feet are in the stocks. Back is broken. You can't rest because of the particular circumstance you're in. Even right here, God deserves it. And I think about Paul and Silas, it's such a striking image of them in prison, like this, singing. And they weren't singing because they were happy. They weren't singing because things were going well on the mission trip. They weren't singing because they were blessed. They were singing because God deserved it. That was it. And when we think about the relationship between worship and discipleship, how do those things, why, why does that, what does that have to do with our discipleship? It's this. When we sing, we sing songs of praise to God. When we worship, we're acknowledging the truth that God is God and we are not. And when we sing because God deserves it, we become a little bit less self-centered and a little bit more God-centered. We become a little bit less selfish and a little bit more grateful. We become a little bit less sin-filled and a little bit more filled with God's love. And just recognizing the truth that God is God and he deserves our worship regardless of our circumstances, that changes us on the inside before we see anything changing on the outside. But there's another reason why we sing. And it's because we sing because God deserves it. We also sing because we need it. Let's think about this for a second. Paul and Silas were in prison. They were beaten. I, I don't think, and we often have this sort of hyper-spiritualized version where everyone's just like, like taking the persecution. Paul's just taking persecution like a man. Like, oh, he's just, he's just taking it, just getting whipped. He's just happy. Um, 
you know, I, he's getting whipped and going, I can do all things through Christ who gives me. I don't, I don't actually think that's how he, you know, he's writing that like later. Um, my assumption is he's going, what on earth did I cross the Aegean for? This was a dumb idea. Why did I, why did I help the slave girl who was following us? Why did I just sort of stick with ministry to the Jews in the synagogue? What, what am I doing? Imagine there are all sorts of doubts, all sorts of emotions going through. And often we think about singing, we think about it as this human expression to a divine audience. That's often how we think of worship. Worship is sort of this, this expressionistic kind of thing that humans do. But I would argue that actually the primary actor in worship is not us. It's God. If you kind of want to flip the, flip the telescope around, you might say that worship is an act of divine formation in the human audience. Often we think that we are the primary actors in worship, but I would argue that God is. And if we think about what happens when we sing, what happens when we recognize that God deserves our songs, then we realize that, yeah, we may be opening our mouths, we may sort of engaging our will to sing, but God is doing something inside of us before we even realize it. Often we think about Christianity as sort of this belief system or a series of propositions we need to adopt. Um, but the reality is the core truth of Christianity can never be grasped merely on a propositional level. They're just too rich. It's possible to know Christian ideas as ideas and not understand them as life-changing truth. And as Pastor Jonathan and Pastor Greg have been echoing week after week after week, Christianity is not primarily about right thinking. It's not even primarily about right belief. You go, isn't it? Isn't it a thing? Christianity is primarily, and Christian discipleship is primarily about right loving. Are we receiving God's love and giving it to other people? And in order for that to happen, we need to sing. Here's why. There are things that singing and worship can do in our souls that a sermon like this one can't. Think about it. When we sing, there are words that are repeated. Songs about repetition. So there's sort of a certain repetition of a message that you don't get when someone is speaking like I am right now. Second of all, we not only have repetition within a song, we actually repeat songs. So when you go to a worship service, you don't hear four new songs every single week. Songs are repeated, not only week by week, month by month, by, but generation by generation, there are songs that are repeated. And truths that are sent deep, deep, deep into the souls of believers multi-generationally. So the repetition matters, but there's also this, this idea of, of musicality. There's poetry to the words. There's rhyme. There's rhythm. There's a tune that's, that strikes your ear. 
And there's something that happens when we sing neurologically that does not happen when you hear someone just speaking from a microphone. There's something that happens in our brains, our emotions, our heart disposition that only happens when there's that combination of word, rhythm, tune, and repetition. And it helps us remember things in ways that we just don't. Like the odds are is that almost everyone here will completely forget what I said today by after lunch. At, at most, you remember one or two small things. I have a few interesting stories to, to close on that you might remember. Uh, but the reality is you almost never forget a catchy song. And there's one other thing about singing that's really interesting is this idea of singing together. There's something really interesting when we're all in one time and place singing the exact same song that none of us, except for our worship leader, chose to sing. Or you may be by yourself singing a song, but you know that people around the world or through time have been singing that same song as well. There's something strangely unifying about singing. Um, again, that's unique. I have a, a quick illustration. You can show me that the slide. Not, we'll skip over the, the verse, but the, that one, yes. When I was uh, doing prep for this sermon, I googled singing in prison. And I was, uh, to my shame, I was hoping to find a really good sermon on Acts 16 that I could crib from. Uh, did not find it. But what did come up was, was even more interesting. I found an article, and I'm an academic, so I love JSTOR. I found an article on JSTOR entitled, and it was from the Journal of Correctional Education. I read that one before. Entitled, Choral Singing in Prison Inmates. Influences of Performing in a Prison Choir. So, the person doing the study looked at the effect of participating in choral singing on prison inmates and looked at how that sort of the, the prison choir group versus a control group that didn't do, join the prison choir in the same prison looked at sort of well-being metrics that are pretty standard in sociology. And the, the, the sub-metrics were um, emotional stability, sociability, joviality, self-esteem, and happiness. All right, so they, and they, throughout this whole process, they had two different experimental groups in prison choirs in different prisons, and then, then control groups in the same prisons. And what they did was they, the people in the choirs participated in rehearsals and prepared for this performance they would be doing, and they tracked their well-being through these journal entries throughout the entire process. Right? And the question is, does it make a difference? Does it do anything to their well-being that they're participating in these prison choirs? And the results, and I'm going to quote the, the author here, said she's found a significant difference between control and experimental groups in sociability, joviality, emotional stability, and happiness. For those who participated in the choir, significant increase in well-being metrics based on self-reporting. And here are a few comments from the inmates. One wrote, the experience uplifted my spirits throughout this week. Another wrote, this was the most wonderful time I've had in about eight years. Another wrote, it touched my heart so much that I almost cried three times, refer, uh, referring to the recital. Another one said, it was fun singing with all my brothers, referencing this idea of the unity. And finally, one of them said, words cannot explain how much I enjoyed that day. The conclusion of the author is this. The data from this study indicate 
participation in choral singing performances, particularly performing outside of the correction facility, uh, benefited inmates' perceived well-being. And you know, academics like to understate their findings, but she's saying it's, this is interesting. But then I asked the question, so is it merely just the act of singing? Like any song, you kind of whistle while you work, because that, is that what this is all about? It's just sort of like firing some things in your brain that you know, makes you just a slightly happier person. And I thought, ah, oh, maybe this, 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 this study kind of debunks my argument or just sort of generalizes it. And maybe it's true that neurologically our brains are affected by music in profound ways. That's true. But this study actually doesn't make the general point. It actually makes our very particular point, and here's why. At the end of the study, the researcher just mentioned offhand what songs those choirs were singing. All right? And the first group was singing an African-American spiritual called Keep Your Lamps Trimmed and Burning. You can flash the lyrics of that really quickly. Um, and it's, it's a reference to Matthew 25. And here are the lyrics. It's like, imagine you're in prison, in a prison choir, and you're singing this song, Keep Your Lamps Trimmed and Burning. Keep Your Lamps Trimmed and Burning, which is referencing sort of being ready for when Jesus comes back. But the, the refrain is, children don't grow weary Children don't grow weary. Can you imagine if you are incarcerated and this is what you're singing at rehearsals and what you're singing in your, in your performance? This hope-filled song of waiting and being ready for potentially the day of your release, I guess is what they may have imagined. And the second group is even more interesting. They were singing Bach and Handel, who are very famous Lutheran composers whose works are filled with Scripture. And we'll talk about Bach more in a minute. So it may be that singing has this general capacity to lift our spirits, but there's very, something very particular about singing songs of worship to God that does something in our souls. The reality is we sing because we need it. There's one more reason why we sing, and this is what we're going to end on. And I'm going to read the rest of the story in Acts 16. All right, about midnight, this is verse 25, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw the prison doors were open, he threw his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. The jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up to, into his house and set food before them, and they rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. An unexpected end to this story. And I've often wondered, and you think about this, I love this, this detail Luke adds. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. 
I've often wondered why was it the Philippian jailer was so uh, eager to become a Christian? Why was he just ready? It was, it's such a weird sort of gap in the story. There's an earthquake. He's going to kill himself because the prisoners he thinks have escaped. Paul says, no, we're still here. And he goes, okay, what must he do to be saved? It's this weird thing that I think always sort of dash, messes with the Christians because they're like, no one really says that, right? Like that never happens. But I think the only thing that makes sense is that that Philippian jailer, his home would have been right next to the prison, probably heard Paul and Silas singing that night and heard the message of the gospel and saw, not, on, not only heard their singing, but saw their circumstances and heard their singing in those circumstances and was already provoked and already had something interesting sort of in his mind. And this brings us to the final point. Why we, and we as Christians, sing? We sing because God deserves it. We sing because we need it. And we sing because others hear it. We sing because others hear it. And we think about the relationship between worship and discipleship. There's a reality we often forget is that there are people who don't know, who don't love God, who may be within earshot of your singing. It's one of the most extreme examples of this in my mind. Um, you could flash to the next one. Comes from Japan. And Japan, as some of you may know, is, is, a, is a profoundly secular country. About two-thirds of Japanese claim no religion whatsoever. Um, and Christianity has perennially uh, struggled in Japan, to say the least. Less than 1% of Japan, Japan is Christian. But on, this, uh, on here we have Masaki Suzuki, and he is sort of known for bringing what's called the Bach boom to Japan in the 1980s. He's a very renowned conductor and organist, and he brought Bach really big in Japan. And he has this Bach group that performs Bach music, and they record albums, and they win all sorts of awards, and they're amazing. But here's what's really interesting. His most sold-out concert every Good Friday is St. Matthew's Passion, where Bach puts to music the arrest death and resurrection of Jesus. That's always his most sold out thing, but Bach is huge, so he sells out concerts year-round for Bach. But here's what's really interesting. He said, invariably, after every single concert, Japanese audience members come up to him, come to the podium, and begin asking him questions about, because they have the Japanese translation of the German music in their program. They begin asking him questions about Jesus about the story they just sort of experienced in music. And the most the interesting thing I always ask him is, what exactly is this Christian notion of hope? And it's really curious because Suzuki says there is no good translation for that word in the Japanese language. It doesn't exist. There are two ways it's often translated. I, my sister-in-law is Japanese. It's, it's the word for desire and the word for something you can never attain. Those are the two words that are often filled in for this Christian notion of hope. But people ask him over and over and over, what is this message? And one, and here's what's crazy, Suzuki believes that thousands, if not tens of thousands of Japanese have become Christians 
First, by hearing the music of Bach. All right? Their, their conversion was facilitated initially through experiencing the gospel, through hearing Bach. And one such believer, who's now a Jesuit monk, believe it or not, said this, there's something about that music that prompted me to probe deeper and deeper into its spiritual origins. Another, who's not a believer, says, what makes Bach so successful in, among the Japanese? Bach gives us hope when we are afraid. He gives us courage when we despair. He comforts us when we are tired. He makes us pray when we are sad. He makes us sing when we are full of joy. So, here's the end. If we want to change and become people who grow in our love for God and our love for others, we must not only be people of the book, the Bible, which is very important, we need to be people of the hymn book. If we want to walk in this path, this process, Canadians say process of change, if we want the truth of the gospel to confront our lives, if we want to repent over and over and over, if we want to come to faith and see this process of change happen in our lives, one of the ways to facilitate that is by singing. We sing at church, sing at home. One of my favorite things to do is sing to our five-year-old and two-year-old when they go to bed. And that's, they like singing. They like when, I don't have a good voice at all, but they like when me and my wife sing to them. But I also love ending my day singing to them. And I would even say sing when you're alone. Corporate singing is great, but there's so many opportunities when we're in the car, when we're alone, to sing. And the reason why we sing is because God deserves it. We sing because we need it. And we sing because others hear it. So my final word for all of you guys today as you're engaging this process of change, engaging this series about discipleship, is let's allow this basic and profound practice of Christian worship, singing, to help us in that process of change. Sing in corporate worship. Sing when you're alone. Sing when you're full of faith. Sing when you're full of doubt. Sing when you're joyful. Sing when you're grieving. Sing in the morning, sing in the evening. Sing because you believe, or sing until you believe. Sing because we need it, but also when they sing because God deserves it. All right, let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this day. Thank you for the opportunity to gather to worship and sing. Lord, change us as we open our mouths and sing your truth. In Jesus' name, amen.